The subject of the talk this evening is the first and second noble truths. Sometimes we hear this uh, talk title and we think, oh no, not more suffering. Haven't we already had enough suffering? But uh, I want to read this quote from the Buddha. The realization of the four noble truths is accompanied only by happiness and joy. So that's the preview. I want to base this talk around the Buddha's first discourse, which is recorded in... uh, the Collected Sayings, the Samyutta Nikaya uh, Sutta Collection. You may know this story that after the Buddha's awakening, he spent the first 49 days not going away from the Bodhi tree, but he stood, sat, and walked around the tree, basically just enjoying the bliss of liberation and reflecting on what he had come to understand. And in that period of time, he thought about not teaching. He thought that what he had found was too subtle for anyone else to understand. And so he wasn't at all sure that he was going to teach. But then when he uh, surveyed the world with his vision, he saw there were some people who had but little dust in their eyes who were capable of understanding. So he decided to teach. And the people he decided to first teach to were five practitioners who had been with him through his ascetic uh, phase of practices. And again, with his vision, he saw that they were located in uh, near the town of Benares, which was about 150 miles away from the place he awakened in Bodhgaya. And he didn't, he didn't have a Mercedes or anything. So he had to walk 150 miles to get to his old friends to deliver this teaching. So that's what he did. And it must have taken him, I, I guess, about 10 days to, to get there. So he arrived and he found his five old friends in the spiritual life. And he started to approach them. And they said, oh no, Gotama has gone soft. Look how much weight he's put on. You can't press your finger in his belly and feel his backbone anymore. He's eaten. He's fallen off the path because they were on this ascetic, whole ascetic trip. But as he, as he walked toward them, they were struck by his composure and his radiance. And finally, they agreed to open themselves to hear what he had to say. And that's the occasion of his delivering the first discourse called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dhamma. And this is the discourse that I'll read from tonight. This discourse was basically the declaration of the Four Noble Truths, which is the truth of suffering, the truth that the cause of suffering is craving, the truth that the end of suffering lies in the end of craving, and the truth that the way leading to the end of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is what he outlined in this first discourse. This is a pretty comprehensive view of his whole teaching. You could say that the rest of his 45 years were just footnotes to this talk. If you look at his collected teachings in English, they occupy about 25 volumes. I find this really interesting. The recorded teachings of Jesus in my Bible are about, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages. And the Buddha's words fill 25 volumes. So he said a lot of things, but they were still all about this central topic. As the Buddha himself later said, formerly as now, I make known just suffering and the end of suffering. So his teachings were always completely pragmatic and down to earth. This is what will help you come out of suffering. This is how you recognize suffering. So let me begin by reading the first the opening of this discourse. Setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Banaras in the deer park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the group of five thus. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? the pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures. 
which is low, ignoble, unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, another name for the Buddha, has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And what bhikkhus is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision and leads to Nibbana? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This bhikkhus is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata. So this was the first exposition of the path that we are following and the possibility of the path leading to uh, liberation, to Nibbana, to complete peace and the end of suffering. The Buddha then continues with an exposition of all four noble truths. So the first truth is the truth of suffering or the statement there is suffering in life and this is the way he expressed it. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering not to get what one wants, is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. So the word here being translated as suffering is the Pali word dukkha, which I'm sure you've all heard before. There's not an English word that really corresponds to dukkha. So we have to approach it with a whole bunch of different English words. So here are some of the translations that have been used. Suffering, which is probably the most common. Anguish, stress, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, unhappiness, and dissatisfaction. So all of these point to the meaning of dukkha as indicating that there's some friction in life for us as human beings. And this friction in life doesn't mean that you're making a mistake with your life, but it points to that some degree of suffering is an integral part of living. And so not to judge ourselves when that shows up in our life. Notice that this noble truth never says life is suffering. Sometimes people look from outside and they say, oh, Buddhism's really a a pessimistic religion. It says that life is suffering. It doesn't say that. The Buddha never said that. And almost always when he talked about suffering, he also talked about the end of suffering. So both are equally important. And I think one of the things one sees is that as we practice the Dharma, we get happier and happier. So there are people in the world, in the field of Dharma practitioners, who are basically happy people. It doesn't mean that happy people are immune from dukkha, but the dukkha is um, more temporary and the happiness becomes kind of the baseline for one's life. And this is possible. The Buddha himself, one of his terms was the happy one, sugata. So this term um, dukkha points to some sense that the uh, basic circumstances of life don't quite satisfy us. So I want to read this um, account from The New Yorker from a few years ago. According to a study just released by scientists at Duke University, life is too hard. Authors of the 1,200-page study were hesitant to single out any particular factors responsible for making life tough, 
A surprise, they say, is that they found so many. Before the study was undertaken, researchers had assumed, by positive logic, that life could not be that bad. As the data accumulated, however, they provided incontrovertible proof that human endurance equals just a tiny fraction of what it should be, given everything it must put up with. Nine out of, the ten, nine out of 10 of the respondents stated that they would give up completely if they knew how. <laughs> the remainder also didn't see the point of going on any longer, but still clung to a slight hope for something in the mail. In a personal note in the afterward, researchers stated that, statistically speaking, life is, quote, just too much. And as yet, they have no plausible theory how anyone gets through it at all. So, sometimes you might feel like that here, but your chance of getting something in the mail has gone away. So, here we are. So one of the things I like about the Buddha's definition of dukkha in this discourse is how universal it is. Birth, aging, illness, death, association from what is displeasing, separation from what is pleasing. Who doesn't experience these things? All of us are vulnerable in this way to the difficulty of, of living. We all have this. You know, sometimes when we feel I am suffering, it feels isolating. As though I'm the only one bearing this problem. Everybody else seems to be sitting beautifully and walking beautifully. And I'm the one who's struggling here. But of course, you know, it's not really like that. We're all in this together. We're all facing the same kinds of, the same kinds of problems. And when we reflect on that, that there is dukkha still in everyone we meet, it provides a way of connection and not a way of, of isolation. This is from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a Palestinian-American poet. The poem is called Kindness. This is just a small part of that poem. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. So this universality of our vulnerability to suffering is part of what connects us as human beings. It opens the door for compassion when we realize it. The Buddha said that there are three kinds of dukkha, three ways that we're exposed to this unsatisfactoriness. The first he called dukkha dukkha. You get the feeling of this? It's like the double shot of espresso at Starbucks. This is the pain of pain. So this is the direct impact of suffering states of body and mind. So physical pain, and uh, emotional pain are included in this dukkha dukkha. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the range of this in the world. When we look around the newspaper every day, we see the impact of wars going on in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. We see the devastation from hurricanes I'm sure you saw this news before you came in Texas, in Florida, in the Caribbean. Closer to home, we see in our own communities violence of murder, of assault, the impact of racism, the mistreatment of children, the most vulnerable people. And even in the protected environment of our retreat, we are subject to bodily pain from injuries, from illness, from aging, from the discomfort of sitting long periods. And we're working uh, often with the afflictive emotions, sadness, grief, sorrow, fear, anxiety, 
These are all part of the field of our difficulties in meditation practice. So dukkha dukkha is never very far away from any of us. It's something that can visit us at any moment, at any time. The second kind of dukkha the Buddha talked about is called viparinama dukkha. And it is described as the unsatisfactoriness of alternation or change. And that means something may be going along in a pleasant way for a while, but because of impermanence, it will shift. And if we're holding on to the pleasantness, when it changes, there will be suffering. Ajahn Chah said that this is like uh, grabbing a hold of a poisonous snake. If you grab a hold of the head, it bites you directly. That's dukkha dukkha. If you grab a hold of the tail and it's pleasant, eventually the head will come around and bite you. And then you suffer. So grasping at the pleasant or the painful eventually leads to the experience of dukkha. Grasping leads to dukkha. Joseph Goldstein had kind of a nice way of putting this uh, succinctly. He was surveying the changes that he was going through physically in a retreat. And he said, if it's not one thing, it's another. I reflected on that often. The third kind of dukkha the Buddha talked about is called Sankara dukkha. This is the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. Sankara in this instance means a conditioned phenomenon, something that arises based on prior causes and conditions. And the, the problem with conditioned phenomena is that they're unstable. So some years ago, we were at a teaching in the Bay Area from the Dalai Lama. I think he was talking on emptiness. That's what I recall. And he was using um, this third area of Uh, Sankara Dukkha to explain something very fundamental to the way the universe is set up. But to set the stage, these were outdoor teachings uh, in Mountain View at an outdoor amphitheater called Shoreline. The stage was set up just for the teachings. They were going on for three days and it was quite beautiful. Dalai Lama was seated on a high throne, which he said is not about puffing up the ego of the speaker, It's to give respect for the teachings, which I thought was interesting. And on both sides of him were monastics from all the different traditions. So there were Tibetan nuns and monks in the bright red robes that you all are familiar with. There were Theravadan nuns and monks in the ochre robes that you know. Um, Korean Zen nuns and monks in the gray robes of that tradition, Japanese Zen monastics in the black robes. The whole stage was this color of monastic life from all over the Buddhist countries. And the backdrop was a painting of the Potala, the palace where the Dalai Lama had lived until the occupation happened. Uh, and he fled the country in uh, 1959. And it was the potala spread across the whole stage where the speakers for the Grateful Dead would have been. There was this huge canvas of the potala at sunset and the Dalai Lama sitting in front. So it was very beautiful. And we were sitting on uh, the grass behind the seats and it felt like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, all the, tri- all the tribes had gathered and there was a big stage and huge speakers so we could hear hear the voice. So the Dalai Lama got to this part in the teaching where he talked about Viparinama Dukkha. And what he said was, don't, it's, it's not quite correct to understand impermanence as that everything is going along in a stable way and then it changes. This is the pointing of Viparinama Dukkha, but in Sankara Dukkha, there's something more subtle being pointed to which is that things don't go along in a really stable way for even two moments, but rather things are constantly arising and passing, being formed and disbanding, coming into existence, passing out of existence, moment after moment after moment. And this is what we need to see. This is the instability of all conditioned phenomena. 
We can see it in the body. We can see it through thoughts. We can see it through the sense bases. We can see it through mental states. They're all arising and passing really quickly. When we see this, we see that there can't be any lasting security from phenomena because there's nothing solid enough there to hold on to in the first place. The Dalai Lama said, if you want to help people come out of suffering, you have to understand all three of these ways in which people suffer. The Dukkha Dukkha, the Viparinama Dukkha, and the Sankara Dukkha. We have to see all of them. And each one requires more subtlety to see. Everyone in the world understands the pain of pain, but not everyone understands the pain of alternation. And fewer people understand the pain of the dissolving structure of reality. But all three of these catch us up in suffering. This is a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, A God figure came down and commented on the teachings, the Dharma teachings that he had understood. And this person said, having seen forms flaw It's chronic trembling. The wise do not cling to form. You can think of this as body sensations. Having seen the shortcoming in bodily sensations, their chronic trembling, the wise do not cling to the body. This is the insight when we look closely into our experience of the body, arising, passing, forming, disbanding, moment after moment after moment nothing solid to hang on to. But we usually don't see this or we usually don't take it in or we don't quite account for it. So in our worldly life, we want to find a world to create a world for ourselves that is kind of um, safe and cozy and predictable, that has security built into it. You know, it's kind of like we want to have adventures, but we still want to be safe. So it's a little bit like a fairy tale where, you know, you can go off and you can have adventures in the woods during the day, but you come home to your safe little bed at night and a parent tucks you in and gives you your cookies and milk and everything's taken care of. That's kind of what we're looking for in life when we don't tune in to the truth of impermanence. And we can do this in meditation also. We can aim to end up on a very cozy plateau of mindfulness and concentration. And we think, oh, if I just get the meditation right, I'm going to land and not move from that cozy plateau. But of course, you know, it doesn't ever work like that. There is greater and greater happiness. There is more and more of a sense of resting, but there's always change. States like mindfulness and concentration are also conditioned. They're part of sankhara, part of compounded phenomena. So they also arise and pass. This is not altogether bad. This is another quote from the Buddha. If there was one speck of permanent form, the holy life for liberation would not be possible. If there was permanence in the world somewhere, it would gum up the works and we wouldn't be able to transform suffering into knowledge and vision and liberation. So impermanence works for our benefit as practitioners. It really does. So the first noble truth um, states the truth of suffering, but the noble truths are not just philosophical statements. It's not like we're just supposed to believe in these things. Each of the noble truths in this discourse also carries with it an action. There's something to do with each of these noble truths. So further on in the discourse, the Buddha states explicitly, this noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood That's the action that's asked of us. It is to be fully understood. The meaning, of course, is we don't fully understand it now. We may think conceptually we get it, but we haven't actualized it. We keep forgetting this truth. 
So we have to see it over and over and over again. And this is an important part of practice. When things are difficult, can we see that as the first noble truth? So, you know, this is an interesting question to ask. How often, when things are difficult, do we see it as the first noble truth and recognize this is dukkha? This is a universal part of life. I would say not all the time. There are a lot of other ways we think about um, our suffering. Sometimes we deny it. Oh no, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I can truck through this. Sometimes we judge ourselves for having it. It's my fault. It's my mistake. If I was doing it right, this wouldn't be happening. Sometimes we blame others for it. You know, it's our parents, it's society, it's the teachers, it's the world. Or we might distract ourselves. We don't want to touch it. So in the daily life, you know, we go to the television, we go to the refrigerator, whatever, to get away from the experience of the dukkha. Or here we might drift off into a pleasant fantasy. So we have ways of missing seeing and really knowing the dukkha that comes. So can we let ourselves just feel it and acknowledge, oh, this is the first noble truth. This is the truth of dukkha in my direct experience. Can we open to it and acknowledge that? This is a uh, kind of delicate point in practice, this first noble truth practice, because if we don't acknowledge the truth, then we're always going to aim for that cozy plateau, whether it's a worldly plateau or a meditative plateau. We're always going to have a gaining idea that we should be landing somewhere else where everything's all worked out. And so that gets us into striving. But sometimes if we do acknowledge the first noble truth, if we think about it too much, the truth of dukkha, we can get depressed. And this is where the view comes in, oh, everything's dukkha. But the Buddha never said that. He never said there's always suffering. He clearly pointed again and again to the pleasure and the happiness that we can find in life. So there's a difference between thinking about the first noble truth and making a view, you know, there's all this dukkha, which does tend to feel like a heavy weight. But when you actually see the truth of dukkha in a moment, that tends to be freeing. So it's a difference between holding a fixed view as a constant ongoing take on life and seeing the truth in the reality. Because when you can see the truth in the reality of the moment, that kind of dukkha is also capable of change. It forms and it's capable of being undone. So that part is liberating. So clearly we are not meant to take the teaching of the first noble truth and get depressed by it. This is again from the Buddha. A practitioner is not overwhelmed by suffering and does not overwhelm oneself with suffering. One does not give up the pleasure that accords with Dhamma, yet one is not infatuated with that pleasure. James was talking the other night about finding these wholesome states of joy and happiness and recognizing them within your practice. That is pleasure that accords with the Dhamma. That offsets the inclination of the mind to lean to just seeing dukkha. Yet one is not infatuated with that pleasure. One appreciates it, but one does not attach So one of the ways to hold the truth of dukkha is to ask, has suffering ever been helpful in your practice? Did it ever brought you anything positive? What brought you to the Dhamma? Wasn't it suffering in some form or another? So this is the almost universal role of suffering in Dhamma practice. It wakes up our yearn to know, our yearning to understand. 
And it is the thing that leads us into hearing the teachings, considering the teachings, and then taking up the practice. So without an impact of suffering in our lives, I don't know if any of us would be here. I wouldn't be here. And then these are noble truths, meaning they have an ennobling quality. This is another way to understand noble. They are ennobling. If you look around the world, how often is suffering ennobling for people? Sometimes it seems not a lot. It often seems people can just get crushed by the weight of their suffering and be heartbroken and lead, lead into despair. But if we use it well, if we're open to learning from it, it can be ennobling can be transformative. I want to read a little bit from this book. I don't know if you've seen this book. Probably a number of you have. It's called The Book of Joy. It's basically a record of a dialogue held over several days between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. took place in Dharamsala, where uh, His Holiness lives. And the subtitle is Lasting Happiness in a Changing World which is kind of a good approach to the Four Noble Truths. And there are a lot of beautiful stories and teachings and inspiration from this book. And both of these, these men have been through incredible suffering in their own personal lives in relationship to their countries. The Dalai Lama had to flee Tibet in 1959, and he has since watched a, a cultural genocide and... A, you know, a huge um, assault on the monastic order take place in his homeland, which he's been powerless to change. The archbishop um, labored for years under the oppressive regime of apartheid in South Africa and became a leading spokesperson in the world, especially after the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. And has seen incredible suffering among his people in that country, even since um, the movement to uh, greater equality. So both of them are not strangers to suffering, personal suffering and societal suffering. But the amazing thing about the book is how much joy they speak from in conveying their, their own understandings of the teachings in their tradition. So, particularly in regard to suffering, it was really interesting that um, Desmond Tutu was talking about the suffering that Nelson Mandela went through in prison. And this, these are uh, the Archbishop's words. I think some suffering, maybe even intense suffering, is a necessary ingredient for life, certainly for developing compassion. You know, when Nelson Mandela went to jail, he was young and you could almost say bloodthirsty. He was head of the armed wing of the African National Congress, his party. He spent 27 years in jail and many would say, 27 years, oh, what a waste. And I think people are surprised when I say no, the 27 years were necessary. They were necessary to remove the dross The suffering in prison helped him to become more magnanimous, willing to listen to the other side, to discover that the people he regarded as his enemy, they too were human beings who had fears and expectations, and they had been molded by their society. And so without the 27 years, I don't think we would have seen the Nelson Mandela with the compassion, the magnanimity, and the capacity to put himself in the shoes of the other. In a kind of paradoxical way, the Archbishop continued, it is how we face all of the things that seem to be difficult in our lives that determines the kind of person that we become. Actually, nothing beautiful in the end comes without a measure of pain, frustration, and suffering. This is the nature of things. This is how our universe has been made up. So there is the opportunity in retreat 
to experience this suffering firsthand and to really seek to understand uh, what it is, where it comes from. And of course, that's what leads into the second noble truth. So let me read that from the discourse. Now, what is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight now here and now there. That is, craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. So this word craving is the translation of the Pali word tanha. And it's the word that we'll use uh, as we talk about the second noble truth. So when I first heard this teaching of the second noble truth, it was kind of revolutionary to me because at that time I felt stuck in my suffering and it was just kind of a mass that I didn't understand at all. And what this teaching says is that there's a cause for it because where there's a cause for something, there's a way to remove the cause. And if you take away the cause, then the suffering goes out also which is the third noble truth. So that was very freeing for me to realize that my psychological suffering could be uprooted by looking at this cause. Now this teaching on the the second noble truth isn't meant to exclude other ways of looking at the suffering in the world because there are other causes for the extreme suffering in the world. You know, people need food, clothing, medicine, and shelter. And when the forces of the world combine to deprive people of those basic requisites, then there are societal causes for suffering as well. There are economic causes for suffering. But assuming that one can gather those requisites, then there's the possibility of transforming our suffering with the understanding of the noble truths. So craving is the translation of tanha, which in the Buddha's time, the word only meant thirst. It was a very simple word. It meant being thirsty. And the Buddha, as he often did, took common words and re-engineered them in his teachings. So I think this is kind of a brilliant re-engineering. Thirst is a form of craving. It's a, it's a wanting, but it suggests that um, there's a deep source. It can be satisfied temporarily, but then it comes back, right? You're thirsty, you drink a glass of water, it's great, very satisfying. How long is it before you need another drink of water? Not so long. So craving works in the same way. We may have a craving, it gets temporarily satisfied, but it's going to spring up again just as the thirst did. In our hearts and minds, what it springs up for is some underlying sense of unfulfillment. This is the human existential condition that we are trying to remedy. This underlying sense that something is not right or is not being fulfilled at the present moment. It's this almost whole, you might say, H-O-L-E, in our heart that is the source of craving. Craving springs up to try to fill this empty, void, hollowness of insufficiency. And then it latches onto one object after another, seeking delight now here and now there. And it picks it up and takes the object in and temporarily the craving is satisfied. But because the underlying hole has not been filled and can't be filled in that way, it springs up again. So in observing this pattern, it's really helpful to start to tune into the force of craving itself more than the objects that it is associating itself with. So this force of craving manifests in different ways. Even though it represents, the language of it represents primarily desire, it's not limited to just the desire force. The craving basically means 
wanting things to be different than they are. So it's a relation to the present moment that is dissatisfied with the present moment and wants it somehow to be different. So there are a couple of ways, let's say there are three ways in fact of expressing this dissatisfaction. And these are our old friends, greed, aversion, and delusion. So one way we get dissatisfied with the present moment is that we want something pleasant, maybe more pleasant, maybe greatly pleasant. We want something pleasant to come into the moment that isn't there, and that's the force of greed. But we can also look at the present moment and say there's a discomfort here that isn't what is wanted, and we reject that out of the force of aversion. So that's also rejecting the present moment and wanting something different to take its place. So in truth, both greed and aversion are manifestations of craving. They're both rejecting the present, wanting to replace it with something else. So craving doesn't just refer to the force of desire or greed. It encompasses greed and aversion, which are really two sides of the same coin. So I mentioned this third quality of delusion. How is it that delusion is also an aspect of craving? This is not so easy to see, but it is true. Delusion is also an aspect of craving. So two ways we can see it. One is that we ignore the activities of greed and aversion. Greed and aversion are always rejecting the present and trying to make something different happen. This activity is ultimately really unsatisfying. It what, it's what keeps the mind spinning. It keeps the mind restless. It keeps the heart from finding peace and ease. But we don't see it. So we are basically deluded about the operation of greed and aversion as our habitual ways of trying to find happiness. We don't look at their operation and that continues to strengthen the force of craving. We're acting out craving again and again through greed and aversion and we don't look at it. So that's the first way. The second way delusion plays into craving is that when we are preoccupied with pulling in the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant, anything that's neutral doesn't register on our interest scale, right? When your head's into pleasure and pain, the neutral comes along, you don't care. It doesn't gratify, it doesn't feed me, but it doesn't threaten me, it doesn't alarm me. So we tune it out. So the delusion to the neutral is another expression of the mind that's lost in craving, that's dominated by greed and aversion. As mindfulness comes in and sees clearly what is, independent of likes and dislikes, the neutral is just as real, just as alive, in some ways just as interesting as the pleasant and the unpleasant. But the mind that's caught in craving doesn't see it, overlooks it, denies it, and that's delusion at work also. So really you could say that craving truly encompasses or is even the same as the movements of greed, aversion, and delusion. They're more or less uh, synonymous. So the retreat setting is a very good place to see the ongoing activity of liking and disliking and ignoring. These are the active expressions of craving. We see it again and again especially with liking and disliking, which are the stronger forces and uh, an active expression, we have to understand that the rub of them, the friction that we feel with them, is due to our own minds. If we blame it on the external situation, you know, the food isn't right today, the weather isn't right today, somebody's making noise in the meditation hall, If we blame it on the external situation, we never get a chance to look at and transform our own habits of mind. 
So when there's a struggle with the way things are, if we can bring it home and look at the movements of greed, aversion, delusion in our own heart, that's what gives us the ability to transform them. There was this beautiful scene in the movie Kundun. I don't know if you have seen it or remember that movie. Martin Scorsese made a film of the life of the Dalai Lama. He did it so beautifully you would have thought he was Buddhist instead of Catholic. He so resonated and picked up what was going on in Tibetan culture. But there was one scene that, um, that struck me. I went back and watched the movie again just uh, last year and I liked it as much the, this time around. So the Dalai Lama is about nine or 10 years old and he's receiving teachers from his tutors who are very esteemed older monks in his lineage. And what they're teaching him is the Four Noble Truths. And they come to the teaching on the Second Noble Truth and they ask the young Dalai Lama, what's your understanding of the Second Noble Truth? And the Dalai Lama says, well, the Second Noble Truth is that um, the cause of suffering is craving. And they say, make it more personal. Speak from your own experience. What's the second noble truth? And he says, oh, second noble truth is um, the cause of my suffering is, is, is my wanting. And they said, not personal enough. State it again, you know, in your own terms. So he sits there and the boy, young boy sits there and reflects for another minute And then he says, most of my suffering comes from my own habits of mind. The tutors go, oh, very good, very good. This is the message of the second noble truth. Most of our suffering comes from our own habits of mind. And if we want to transform it in the context of a meditation retreat, this is where we need to look. And when we're willing to look there, we find we have all these tools for transforming that suffering that's based on greed, aversion, and delusion. One of the, uh, I find, really interesting ways to work is anytime there's a sense of struggle throughout your day, anytime you feel yourself conflict, struggle, tension, difficulty, dukkha, take a look and see what is being resisted or what is being wanted. This sense of struggle always comes from some lack of acceptance. What's not being accepted? What in the moment is being pushed away or uh, grasping for pleasure to replace? So we we can learn about this and then when we look at it again and again, these activities of greed and aversion and delusion, and we see our own responsibility in them, we get better and better at letting go. Of course, it's the letting go that leads to the third noble truth, which is the end of suffering. So I'm not gonna talk about that tonight. We'll talk about it later in the retreat. But to me, this is the heart of Dharma practice. How do we move from the second noble truth, which is struggle, conflict, difficulty, how do we let go of that craving and open to the third noble truth, which is the absence of struggle, the absence of craving and the presence of peace? This is the heart of what we're trying to learn in meditation. This is how we transform our suffering moment after moment. So the Buddha talked about three kinds of craving that were mentioned in the, in the discourse. Craving for sense pleasures. This is called kama tanha. You can see what a huge force this is in the world. Craving in the worldly sense for pleasant experiences of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. I just looked up some industry uh, figures. Um, the sense of sight, movies, brought in $11 billion last year in the United States alone, craving for visual. Um, Sound, recorded music, $15 billion in the world last year. $15 billion in, and this is not even live concerts and, 
you know, all the other ways we like sounds. Smells. This one struck me. The perfume industry, $29 billion a year. And that's not even air fresheners and deodorants. And then um, food, taste, just the taste. The restaurant industry in the U.S., $783 billion in 2016. So, you know, money follows sense desire. And so the scale of it is big. So this is where in the world people are putting, we are putting a lot of energy. And underneath the the wanting of sense pleasure is the wish to become happy through it. Sense pleasures do bring a certain amount of happiness. And sense pleasures are an integral part of lay life. If you're really not interested in sense pleasures, then I think Bhante can tell you the monastic life has many advantages. (laughs) And the monastic life is designed as a renunciation of the effort to find sensual pleasures. But as lay people, we are involved in a world where sense pleasures are part of our daily activities. And we have the opportunity to find many of them. So what the Buddha cautioned about, he didn't say you can't enjoy sense pleasures. He said, don't build your happiness all around finding sense pleasures. Because you can see how people do this, right? There are people who do it with food, people who do it with drugs, people who do it with sex, people who do it with television, people who do it with alcohol. So as lay people, it's not that we are not allowed to have sensual pleasure. Don't build your life around trying to find happiness through those avenues. It doesn't work. You know that or you wouldn't be here because the sense pleasures here are really limited but other pleasures are are great. This is the first kind of uh, craving, craving for sense pleasure. Second kind of craving, he said, is uh, called bhavatanha, craving for existence or craving for becoming. This is a deep force in the mind, this craving for existence. It's really, and it's why we're afraid of dying. Somehow we have this deep-seated yearning for life in this body. And it's why death is is scary for most people. When you think about it, this craving for existence is not very rational, right? I mean, if you went to bed tonight and you never woke up, would that be a problem for you? (laughs) It might be a problem for other people, but it might not be a problem for you at all. And yet that thought terrifies us. You know, that's like the worst thing that could happen. So there's it's a deep-seated craving we have to be alive, to be in a body. It doesn't quite really make sense. So this is one of the mean, this is the basic meaning, craving for existence. But bhava also means becoming. There's a desire to become something or someone. And when I look back on my early years of retreat, I was, I was younger then, I, was, I would run through a lot of projections about where I wanted to live and what work I wanted to do and what kind of community I wanted to join and how I was going to plan my life and support myself. And all of these types of becoming were running through my mind over and over and over again. And that's bhavatanha as a craving to become something or someone. I like this line from Lily Tomlin. I always knew I wanted to be someone, but I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) So we all become someone. And then the third kind of craving is the craving for non-existence. This is called vibhava tanha, not existent craving. And it basically means the state where we want to escape from the world of sense contact. We don't want the constant stream of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mind objects. We want to turn it off, but we can't. So this is a deep kind of aversion to life. You're just going, enough already. I don't want to keep experiencing 
this stuff. So obviously this is the deep motivation behind suicides. One simply wants to cut off the stream, a deep aversion to living. It also means in a less grandiose way, wanting to get rid of some, a particular unpleasant contact that's happening. So aversion to the unpleasant is also contained in here, not wanting that kind of becoming. So these are the forms of, of tanha that we can experience and know. And there's an instruction, an action connected with the second noble truth as well. Here's the instruction. This noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. That means let go of craving. That means surrender your desire in meditation to have the moment be different than it is. This is why the role of acceptance in meditation is so important, is so central. Now we're not talking about going back into the world and saying you have to accept all the conditions of the world. You have to accept the injustice and the racism and the oppression and the homophobia. We're not saying that. But in meditation to find your own balance of mind, there needs to be this letting go of the forces of greed, aversion, delusion, or there will be no peace. Acceptance is opening to the present moment just the way it is, and that's what opens the door for peace and settledness. This is the instruction around craving that allows it to move into the third noble truth, which is the end of craving is the end of suffering. So we look at this moment again and again. What are we wanting from the moment? And can we let go of any desire for it to be different than it is? Any desire for there to be um, less physical discomfort? Any desire for there to be more calm or more concentration or more metta? Any desire for there not to be any difficult state of mind? fear or sadness, anger. The interesting thing is if we can recognize this movement of greed or aversion, of wanting, not wanting, and start to meditate with it, something interesting happens. Eventually it does let go. The particular form of craving does not last forever. If you can just stay with it, it will release. Sometimes it will release because you've really learned how to do it skillfully. Sometimes it just runs out of steam. Whichever way, whatever you're working with that is difficult to be with, continue watching the urge to push it away or bring something else in and eventually that will release and you will go back into balance. This gives real trust in the teaching of impermanence. And this lets you feel in a direct experiential way the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth. When desire is active, what does that feel like? What does wanting feel like? Is it peaceful and calming and settled? Or is it contracted and agitating and restless? When aversion is present, is that peaceful and calming and concentrating? Or is that friction and rubbing and fiery? And then what does that release feel like? So get really interested in this movement from the second noble truth of some form of craving and lack of acceptance, some struggle, to being patient and observing it with mindfulness and noting that moment of release. How does that feel? This is really the heart of our practice. And we develop more and more skill moving from the grip of craving into the freedom of letting go. Finding the peace and the ease that's inherent in our minds already. So I'm just going to close with this quotation from Ajahn Suchito. To one who cultivates attention to the present, in whatever form the present moment takes, the mind through practice, begins to reveal its treasures, sensitivity, joy, confidence, 
and serenity. And these are all found in this movement from letting go into the third noble truth, the state of peace, acceptance, calm, temporary Nibbana. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.